0: Lord, what a delightful way to start this morning. What a wonderful uh, visual and not just a symbolic visual, but a reality where you have shown up and done something profound. Lord, we delight in this declaration that you have made out loud of Christian being one of yours. Lord, we enjoy uh, seeing and and, uh, 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 just experiencing this deliverance through the watery ordeal. Uh, We're so thankful that you have done more than just removing dirt from the body, that through our union with Christ by faith, you have removed every sin. Lord, we are entrusting Christian to you that this uh, baptism in many ways will be the beginning of a profound journey of faith, Lord. Uh, We pray that you would use him in a way that you would use the priests after they were washed and cleansed and ordained in ways that you would... uh, do profound things with offerings once they were washed and burned and sublimated into your presence. We pray for all of the above with Christian, that he will experience your presence, that he will be a sweet aroma to you, that he will be a useful priest as he serves the saints and serves his community and serves his family. Lord, we are entrusting him to you. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for our brother Steve. Lord, um, what a a sad, heartbreaking event we entrust this brother to you, Lord, we ask you to heal his body. We ask you to sustain uh, Karen and uh, their family, Lord, to give them a clarity of your purpose and your presence. Lord, we pray for something uh, really profound. We pray for a complete and absolute recovery and healing. Lord, we are entrusting our brother to you. Lord, also, we want to pray for a people group, a a massive prayer for 30 million people, uh, none of which, as far as we know, knows you as Savior and Lord. Uh, Lord, we are asking uh, you to draw this people to you. We're asking you to give them dreams and visions that will be coupled with people that can't stay here people that have to take worship to the far corners. Lord, we are praying for this people group, for the uh, Pashtun people in Pakistan and just entrusting them to you. Lord, also we're praying for another church nearby in Stephenville at Elkridge Baptist Church. We're praying for Daniel and Stacy McCabe. Lord, we pray that you would bless this church as our brother Morris is ministering to them this weekend. Lord, we pray that you will speak through Morris, that you will equip the saints, that you will stir hearts that you'll mobilize the saints to be salty, bright, and aromatic in um, Stephenville. Lord, we are entrusting this this sister church to you and thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Use Morris this morning to bless the saints. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes for a spirit-enabled engagement with an incredible story. What I pray in these next few minutes as we immerse ourselves into uh, the story of the exodus, that you will give us a new view of your work with us. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, I want to do a couple things. I want to begin our sermon with the reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 6. So if you would stand. As you're standing, I want to let my crew back in the the media booth know there, uh, after we have this reading and we all stand, if you can turn the lights down a little bit. Just kind of keep it uh, kind of a listening type environment. And I'll explain what we're doing there in a moment. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Lord, speak to us through this amazing story. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. All right. These next few minutes are going to be a little um, different in the sense that I want to just uh, sort of guide you into a profoundly wonderful story. It's going to mean some sizable portions of Scripture that I want to guide you through. Uh, there'll be some commentary as we go. Uh, we'll be in the Book of Exodus, so if you don't have your Bibles open, you can turn to the Book of Exodus, and there'll be places where I'll be kind of jumping around. So I'll try and give you kind of a reference as to where we are, uh, if. If you lose me, or if I lose you, I guess, no, you lose me, then I will try and help guide you back into where we are. But if you're like a visual listener, then maybe trying to see the text. If you're an audible person that just like doesn't really need to see something, then just try and surrender to this story. Imagine maybe a different setting, like we're around a fire together in a campfire, and someone's telling a really cool story. Let me kind of pick up and connect from last week before we get into our story. We left off last week with a promise made to a barren couple, an old barren couple. And the promise made was that I will make of you a great nation. This was made to Abram. And to your offspring I will give the land of Canaan. God made a promise to this old barren couple of a, a people that would not only be a people but would be a numerous People, A prolific people. And then he also made a promise of a a place, a land, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Offspring, he promised him, would be as numerous as the sand and the, the, the stars. And then he would give them this promised land called Canaan. God's promised people would be in God's promised land, Canaan. Now, in the 500 years since that promise—that was in Genesis chapter 12—in the 500 following years, this barren couple has grown to a party of 70. Okay, by this point, they're 70 strong with 12 sons. But then there's a retelling, in some ways, of the story of the Cain, the story of Cain and Abel, where Joseph's brothers beat him up throw him into a pit, and sell him into slavery, landing him in Egypt. And then as God's people are disrupted with this yet another version of the fall, yet another telling of Cain and Abel's story, the land, this land that was promised to them, sort of coughs them out through uh, drought and famine, and they find themselves having to go to Egypt just to survive. That's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We've got God's promised people, they're growing in number, but yet they're clearly not in God's promised land. Let's continue reading. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, as if the slavery itself wasn't quite enough, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Down in verse 22 Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. This promised people is growing in number, but they are clearly not in the promised land and they are clearly not under God's rule. They're under the rule of an evil king, Pharaoh, who is dealing with them, verse 10, shrewdly who is afflicting them with heavy burdens, verse 11, who's oppressing them in verse 12, who's ruthlessly making them to work as slaves, verse 13, who's making their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in field work, and saying again, ruthlessly making it their work as slaves in verse 14, and then adding on top of that, killing their sons in verses 15 and 16 and 22. Life for God's people under Pharaoh's rule meant being used and abused. Bitter slavery. Death for the sons. The once-honored family of Joseph has become a used, abused, oppressed people, and their sons are floating in the Nile. It's a gruesome, gruesome picture. Chapter 2, verse 23, it says that they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's no surprise. Man, what a tragic, tragic situation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. It's like a little wee ark, with a little wee retelling of the story of Noah. Like a wee Noah. Put the child in it and place it among the reeds on the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. What a great story of providence. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. You're going to get paid for taking care of your own kid. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him up out of the water. A beautiful story of a man where... His life was in danger from day one, yet another story of a baby, a familiar story of a baby whose life was in danger from day one, and yet God protected and provided for him in a wonderful way. He's baptized by this point, Christian. He went through his baptism, and his commissioning is happening in the next few verses. His baptism washed him and ready him for service. Let's see his commissioning beginning in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. So funny to me. It's like a cartoon. He looks this way and then he looks that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. That's not like a cartoon. Okay, Profound, uh, an event of really that we can identify as nothing other than Murder. He looks this way and that he struck down an Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And his his brothers answered him, really in a version of, you're not the boss of me. They said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks, the father's flocks. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. I want you to see this guy, this guy that's really in his process of being called for a unique work. He's content in a foreign land. He's parked officially. He's comfy. He's got a new wife named Zipper. He's got a father-in-law. He's got a job he likes. He's pretty content. The story continues We'll look in verse 23. Just skip that next verse. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And this is like meanwhile back in Egypt. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. and They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel And God knew. Man, I love those verbs. We'll consider those again in just a moment. But let's continue in chapter 3. Meanwhile, back in Midian, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, his um, content brother. We're revisiting back in Midian. He's content keeping the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he left uh, his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, he did probably what many of us would go, what in the world is going on over there in the distance? It looks like a bush that's on fire, but yet it's not burning up. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. He must have thought, that's really weird. So he goes over to check out this bush, and when he gets up to it in verse 4, the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, and God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, excuse me, Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people has come to me, and I've also seen their oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you brought, have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to them, I am who I am. He said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. It's a profound a calling, a profound event here where God speaks to Moses, this very content man who's running and fleeing from his problems. God finds him in Midian. He speaks to him from a bush. He says in verse 8, I have come down to deliver this people that you abandoned. And then in verse 10, he surprisingly says, and I'm going to send you to go get him." I've come down, yet I'm going to send you. And oh, by the way, in verse 12, I will be with you. Look what happens in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Moses answered him after some other uh, uh, instructions that the Lord gave him. Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand, Moses? And he said, It's It's a staff. He said, well, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Man, can we all just for a moment consider the humanity of this guy that God has called? He gave him some other tricks, too. He gave him really three of them, this snake, this staff to snake thing, the hand in the cloak thing, where you put the hand in, and you pull it out, and it's leprous, and you put it back in again, and pull it out, and voila, it's healed There's a third trick also. You take water from the Nile and you pour it on the ground and it's blood. He gave him these three tricks to take back with him as he goes back to Egypt. But the thing that really to me is so human is this staff that he's carried around maybe for years by this point. He throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake, and he runs from it like a chicken. This is a real guy doing amazing things. Real people are always called. To impossible tasks. That's the only people he deals with. is real people that run from snakes, real people that make tons of excuses, and God's going to do a profound work through him. God has plans for this man, a real fellow who's content, full of excuses, and runs from snakes. Let's pick up in verse 18 of chapter 4. This previously content man, this newly Baptized and commissioned man, went back to Jethro, his father in law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, that trick staff. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I'm sure Moses must have thought he misheard that last statement. He must have said, I will soften Pharaoh's heart because if sending me to do something really hard, he's surely not going to make it more difficult. Surely he must have said, I will soften his heart. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. Just another thought. This is just kind of a devotional thought. This is not central to the sermon, but I think it's a devotional thought because we all have these little versions of this misheard phrase, potentially misheard phrase. God tells Moses that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart as he puts his hand to something. There is nothing linear or tidy or predictable about faith ventures that God calls you to. Nothing linear, tidy, or predictable about following God. Faith is full of wrinkles and turns that require drawing on the Lord that require trusting in God. It might be a wayward child. It might be some of you who have raised children and you don't understand why this one child who's raised the same way the others have been raised is wayward and going completely different direction that breaks your heart. It might be an unexplained sickness. It might be deja vu all over again. A stroke two days ago from a brother that fought for his life just a couple of years ago. There's always wrinkles and always turns that require faith. It might be relational discord. It might be a heartache that you can't explain. Faith is required to keep going in and through the wrinkles. And this man has been charged with a profound task. And it appears, at least at first blush, that God has introduced some wrinkles and turns. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. All right, Let's pick up in chapter 5. We're making progress. We're getting there. Y'all are doing good. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to read a couple of sections of chapter 5, and then we're going to move into our home base just for a few minutes. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses is back in Egypt now, and he's approached Pharaoh. He's doing what God has told him to do. He's likely, apparently, by the way this unfolds, forgotten that God said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But he's going back and doing what he's told. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord anyway, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Get back to your bricklaying. Get back to your slavery. Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. We're not going to make their jobs easier. But the number of the bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the very least. Man, what a profound heartbreak. This slavery there experience has has, has gotten worse as they've increased the workload. You go find your own substrate. You go find your own straw for making these things we've commanded you to do and make. Let's pick up in verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us stink. See, the foremen of the people were what slaves, our recent slaves in our country called drivers, they weren't the masters. The drivers were themselves slaves that were put in in charge of the slaves. So these foremen are themselves Israelites, and they're declaring to Moses and Aaron, you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. What you've tried to do for us, you've made worse. Our slavery has not gotten easier, and we've experienced no freedom at all. It's gone the other direction. You've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to God and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Why did you ever send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Man, this is a super dark story, isn't it? You guys have made it through, okay, in case you're wondering. You've made it through gobs of Scripture and gobs of story. I hope in the telling of it you've gotten some sense of the darkness, of enslavement. This people are enslaved God's man is rejected, not only by the man that he was sent to ask for freedom from, Pharaoh, but also by his own people. This is a profoundly dark moment. And not a lot is recorded as to what this was like, this slavery, beyond the words that we have in these few chapters that I've read. There's some strong descriptors in there. I hope you paid attention to them. Shrewd dealing. Afflicted with heavy burdens, oppressed, ruthlessly made to work as slaves, lives made bitter with hard service. Add to that, sons are floating in the Nile. And I hope we can connect to some of these descriptors. Heavier work is laid on them, find your own straw. We don't have any data, we don't have any testimonies from these slaves of ancient Israel in Egypt. But we have a chronological, in some ways, a chronological neighbor of what slavery was like. We have a chronological neighbor right here in our own country that we can ask for some testimony of what slavery is like. If I had my life to live over, I would die fighting rather than to be a slave again. I want no man's yoke on my shoulders. No more. Robert Falls, aged 97, in Knoxville, Tennessee. If I had a thought, if I had any idea that I'd ever be a slave again, I'd take a gun and just end it all right away because you're nothing but a dog. You're not a thing but a dog. That's Fountain Hughes, aged 101, in Baltimore, Maryland. Now, these folks are long gone, this point, even at the age of 101. This one from Sarah Gudger, aged 121, from Asheville, North Carolina. She might still be around, gracious. I sure has had a hard life, just work and work and work. I never know nothing but work. No, ma'am. I never know what it was to rest. I just work all the time from morning till late at night. Lordy, honey, you cannot know what a time I had, all cold and hungry. No, ma'am, I ain't telling no lies. It's the gospel truth. It show is. This one from Andy Anderson, he didn't know how old he was. In Fort Worth, Texas. I lay in the bunk two days, getting over that whipping, getting over it in the body, but not in the heart. No, sir. I has that in the heart till this day. We have a chronological neighbor that's a terrible tutor of what life it must have been like for slaves in ancient Egypt. This is from Frederick Douglass. During 10 or 15 years, I had been, as it were, dragging a heavy chain which no strength of mine could break. I was not only a slave, but a slave for life. I might become a husband, a father, an aged man. But through it all, from birth to death, from the cradle to the grave, I had felt myself doomed. All efforts I had previously made to secure my freedom had not only failed, but had seemed only to rivet my fetters the more firmly. And to render my escape more difficult. God's people here are under the rule of Pharaoh. Enslaved, embittered, and hopeless in Egypt. But thank goodness the story doesn't end there. Let's look at Exodus chapter 6 together and see what unfolds. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now, in my timing, on my terms, under my circumstances, so that I get every single bit of the glory, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord." I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord. Man, God's people are not in God's place. They're not under God's rule. But God is going to act. God takes the initiative. He says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you and I will be your God. And I will bring you into the land. Buddy, go ahead and put up that slide for me. Really, this is, the, this is where this is going. You guys have made a profound investment in the morning. I was wondering if y'all would make the journey to get to this point right here. And I'm glad that we're here, because I think everybody did. Maybe a rare few. Y'all were so invested. Let's see where this goes. There are four things that really come out of this Exodus pattern. We're going to call it an Exodus pattern because you'll see it over and over and over again. The first of those four things is it's a deliverance accomplished by God. All the verbs in this story that I read to you that are good verbs are God's verbs. Every single one of them start to finish on, page, or on chapter 2. Looking at verses 24 and 25, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people and God knew God's verbs. Israel's just stuck in slavery. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. There's another verb, heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down. All his verbs. Wonderful, wonderful verbs. And this this dear one in in chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you. I've got tons of verbs here. And by the way, I will be with you. And then those that we can add from chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you and be your God. I will bring you into the land because the good verbs are mine. And let's enjoy that first and foremost. That when it comes to an exodus, the good verbs are God's. Secondly, go ahead and hit that next one. Buddy, a deliverance from slavery means delivery from slavery to the freedom and dignity of sonship. Some beautiful, beautiful thoughts here. He's allowed this darkness to develop that was so profound that it involved bitter slavery, hard service. They're afflicted with heavy burdens. Their sons are floating in the Nile. But it's a new chapter in the disclosure of God. He says, I haven't revealed my my character and my person to your fathers this way. I'm revealing myself and disclosing who I am in a profoundly new way. And that is, as God as deliverer from slavery, I'm the God who delivers slaves. That's what I do. I'm the God who frees captives. A very familiar passage in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments start with these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You're going to know me now as the God who delivers slaves. Up to this point, his father's... That Jacob, Isaac, Abram have known God as God the creator, El Shaddai, God who is sufficient. But he says, now you're going to know me in a new way, a deeper, bigger way as God the deliverer. I'm the God who delivers slaves. It becomes a new way to understand him, literally. But what's cool about it, too, is he doesn't just deliver them from being slaves into being non-slaves he delivers them into a place of blessing i don't know if you noticed this on these these chapters that i read he said i'm going to take you out of this thing but i'm going to take you into this thing i'm going to take you out of this place called slavery to pharaoh and this bitter service and i'm going to take you into a promised land flowing with milk and honey thankfully our god this deliverer god doesn't just deliver us From slavery, he delivers us into blessing. Out and into, out and into, out and into. It's all over this story. The third thing that comes out of this is a deliverance by God is accomplished through a man. And in this case, it's a regular old man. A regular old man that just makes excuses I don't talk real good. Can you find somebody else to talk for me instead or maybe replace me? Who will I say sent me? I mean, they don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. I don't even know who I am. Who am I to do this? This guy's full of excuses. And he's also a murderer, by the way. And he's also scared of snakes. We talking about a real man here that he's given a man-size job. A regular old fella. But God said, I'm coming down in chapter 3, verse 8. I'm coming down to deliver my people. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, and I'm sending you. Man. The fourth thing that comes out of this is the deliverance that created a lasting relationship between God and his people. I don't know if you noticed this in chapter 6, verse 7, but we're looking at something that really we could call wedding language. It could be in a wedding service, the way it, way, it, way it unfolds, this verbiage. In chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God till death do us part. I mean, you could just add in richer or poorer, in sickness and health. It just sounds like wedding language because it's devoted language. I'm going to be there for the, 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 the duration, no matter what unfolds. This deliverance, this exodus deliverance creates a lasting relationship between God and His people that's durable. Man. You know, the reason that I've invested so much in this story this morning and the reason we're going to invest in this story the next few weeks is because this story informs our story. All these things up here, these four things that are true of the Exodus 3,500 years ago at this point, yeah, 3,500 years ago, are true for us today. It's not just a pattern that informs our story on top of that. It's actually the continuation of the story of God's people. So on layers, it's worth us making a profound investment in this story. It informs our story, and frankly, it is our story. The deliverance is accomplished by God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 or 7, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to the prince of the air, the power of the air. You're by nature children of wrath. Man, you're you stuck in Egypt, in slavery, walking with Pharaoh, making bricks without straw. As hard as you try, you can't get out of it. The rivets actually get tighter in the fetters. But God verbs. God verbed. He said, I'm going to make you alive together with Christ. I'm going to raise you with Christ. And not only that, I'm not just going to bring you out of death. I'm going to seat you with the victor into heavenly spaces. Out and into. Because that's what he does. All the verbs are his. He delivers from slavery. And he delivers into life. Delivery from slavery to sonship. This will change The way you read your Bibles, it will change the way you interpret passages. Maybe you've read a certain way your whole lives. One brief example, because I can't pass it up. We served it up. Romans chapter 7 is such a familiar passage for us. It's sometimes treated like it's a testimony of what it means to follow Christ and how it is to deal with the difficulties of the flesh. Maybe read it a different way this morning. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You know the passage, Romans chapter 7? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Sounds like slavery, doesn't it? I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. This could be a testimony of Egypt and slavery. The rivets are just tighter with all my best efforts. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, who, any who, who could it be? And the next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will will deliver me in this exodus of my slavery to sin and death? Jesus will. The next verse says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Who's going to deliver us in our exodus? Jesus is, and he already has. Man, he is our new and better Moses that frees us from slavery to sin and death. And just like he's done this before with a man, like he did it with Noah, like he did it with Moses, in this case, he's done it with the God-man. What's different about this man is he didn't try to talk God out of the venture. He didn't make excuses, and he doesn't run from snakes I'll tell you something else about this man that we're considering now with our exodus is this man's tomb is vacant. Unlike Moses' his tomb is empty. This man accomplished this exodus. He identified himself as the son of God and God the son over and over again seven times in the book of John. I am, I am, I am that I am. Tell him, I am that I am is delivering you from slavery to sin and death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, Jesus will. Jesus will and Jesus has. And he's done this in a way that is quite durable. Deliverance that lasts. I've not only come for life, but that they may have abundant That they may have it to the fullest. That they may have durable life. That they may have eternal life. That they may have a life that does not end. We are saved from death through Christ for eternal life. That's durable. Man, I hope this little pattern blessed y'all this morning. I want to ask something of y'all. Immerse yourself in this story. This is the story that makes up the language of the New Testament. Words like redemption, ransom, slavery, freedom, those all come from this story in ancient Israel. Those words that are so common to the New Testament letters and gospels, we can't even make sense of them apart from steeping ourselves in this story of the Exodus. What we'll find there is we'll find a profound window into what it means to be the people of God. I hope that together we'll have this thought. Do we even really know who we are? Do we really even realize who we are? Maybe as we realize what God did for them, we can see that He's doing that for us. We are the continuation of the story. God's people drawn out of Egypt, already freed from sin and death and slavery to those drawn through the wilderness of life in a fallen world as sojourners and pilgrims on our way to the promised land. It's our story, people. Do you even know and realize who we are? Let's pray. God, what a beautiful window into uh, what you are doing for us. Lord, we're thankful that these things were recorded, that these things happened for our benefit. We're thankful that we can look through this window and lens of the story of the Exodus and we can see ourselves in there as you are saving a people. Lord, we are conti- we're, we're thankful that it's the continuation of the story and not just a, a story that informs ours, but that we are actually the continue, continuation of the people of God that are being saved out of the world. Or we just, I pray for this series that we spend the next few weeks together that we will truly, truly connect to this ancient story of deliverance of an ancient people and that we'll see that you are still doing what you do delivering slaves from slavery. Or we are so thankful this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.